Welcome to Always Listening, Can I Trust My AI Assistant, a podcast series from the Secure AI Assistance Research Project. The SAIS Research Project focuses on investigating the security of AI assistance and privacy of its users. In this podcast series, we will be discussing in particular voice AI assistants with the researchers at SAIS and some of their partners to answer the questions, how do AI assistants really work? How do they use or possibly misuse data? And we will start to unravel the question of, can I really trust my AI assistant? Last time on the Always Listening podcast, we explored how voice AI assistants work, all the way from the point of giving a command through to the response. We talked about how skills could come from your service provider or from an unknown third party. And we answered that all important question, Are AI assistants always listening? In this second episode, we're considering the question of what happens to my data when I'm using an AI assistant. I spoke to Guillermo Suarez-Tangil, Assistant Professor at the Amedia Networks Institute, who worked with the SAIS team on their research into the privacy and data practices of skills within the Alexa Amazon ecosystem. The first thing I wanted to know is exactly what sort of data are we talking about? There is a wide range of data assets in AI assistants, um, and and obviously it depends on the type of personal assistant. But in in general, what I would say that voice recordings and 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 sort of like um, the interaction with the user via conversations is is one of the um, main data assets that you can you can gather. And and when you think about the the voice itself as a as an asset, you sometimes don't realize how much information can be carried when you when you, when you, when you talk and when you discuss. And in particular, sometimes there are uh, mechanisms and platforms that are that are able to infer sentiments, uh, the, how how the user feels uh, by looking at the prosody of uh, the conversation and, and try to see if a user is happy, is is, is distressed, and and so kind of like uh, within the data recordings, there is still quite a lot of signals that can can actually infer um, data from from users and and sensitive data uh, actually if, if if we are talking about sentiments. There is also another important um, data asset that is uh, the location of the users. Um, typically, we also can um, find the smart personal assistant requesting users for information like emails. So, so kind of already personal information because it can oftentimes uh, link and identify the, the users. We can also see how platforms request uh, payment information to, to make the interactions with the users and the shopping a bit more uh, friendly. And uh, at the end of the day as well, I think this has been discussed before, um, your habits uh, through the way in which you interact with the, with the different skills, um, that's something where we, you can infer quite a lot of uh, data. For example, you can get to know at what time you, you've woken up or at, at what time you, you come back from, from home, uh, what do you generally like. And I think all these elements, depend, um, they provide feeds of, of data that uh, are, where the service provider of all the uh, of, of the smart personal assistant can, can get a hold on, 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 on you. So there's all sorts of data that the AI assistant ecosystem could have access to, from your name and location to what you might be feeling from the way you say something. And there's also metadata. Will Seymour, a research associate on the SAIS project at King's College London, 
explains more. Just by using any kind of digital service, you kind of generate this this metadata as, as you go along. So when people are wondering about, you know, what what Meta could learn about their WhatsApp messages, for example, it's like well, actually the sort of they can't read the content of the messages, but the metadata, like who it's from, who it's to, when it was sent, what what networks that forms a part of, is is more valuable in a lot of cases than the the content. So why are we so concerned about what data is held? I mean, I have an Amazon Alexa and I find it really useful. She gives me reminders when I ask her. She holds onto my shopping list for me. She plays music when I ask her. And sure, she has lots of data about me, but it's for a purpose, right? So where is the concern coming from? Guillermo explained that there are a lot of risks that users might not be aware of. Modern voice assistants allow third-party developers to offer um, an ecosystem of, uh, of applications. And, and, and at the end of the day, you are sort of like opening the, the, the doors or the windows to, to your home to, to, to someone that you may not trust. So you may trust uh, uh, your provider, Amazon Alexa or Google Echo, but, but, but then that is radically different than, than trusting anyone that can develop a, you know, a piece of software and, and provide you sort of like a, a service. And in general, there is an, an underlying risk into letting third-party developers uh, access into to your data, even if it is maybe a fragmented view of, 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 of the data, because um, at the end of the day, there is a business model behind the way, the, be, behind the motivation as of why someone is developing um, a program for you and, and letting you use it. And, um, and it's unclear to what extent the information that they collect from the users is being used to offer you a service alone or to maybe monetize uh, what are your interests, what are your, what is it that you, that your personal information or what are your different habits. Uh, one of the things that, what, what I see that is like a, like a major risk is when you develop uh, customer oriented services that uh, may allow someone to have uh, to use your your data for uh, for for kind of like monetizing your your interest and providing you um, I don't know some some tailored uh, advertisement or or some 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 sort of information that would allow you uh, that would enable um, these uh, developers to to get a benefit out of you. So a lot of the risks Guillermo explained come from not knowing exactly what skills are doing with your data, especially when it comes to third-party skills. And we'll come back to this idea a little bit later, but first, let's find out how consent to use your data is gathered in voice AI assistance. Will explained more. Yeah, so in general, uh, at the moment for voice assistance, consent is gathered via like a companion smartphone app. So you're talking to the assistant, you're using a skill, uh, that requests some extra information from you and you have to pick up your phone and sort of tick some boxes to say that you're you're happy to share the information. Uh, a new feature that we're interested in at the moment is giving this consent verbally. So, you know, instead you're using the assistant, uh, you open a voice that asks for some data and the assistant just asks you, you know, do you consent to share your name and your phone number? And you say, you know, I approve and, and off you go. From a usability perspective, this is brilliant. This is much smoother than having to use a phone with your hands-free device, you know, which was always kind of a little bit of a, a paradox. But the problems arise when we're asking people to 
consent to data sharing kind of in the moment. Um, it's interesting because as researchers, we think about informed consent all the time as part of kind of gathering data for, for research studies. Um, so, you know, if, it feels obvious to us that, you know, if, if you're gathering consent, you want people to be informed about what they're consenting to. You want to them to have enough time to think about and kind of make that decision without feeling pressured. Um, and then also kind of from a legal perspective, um, doing a lot of work around privacy and the GDPR. And it's kind of interesting how gathering consent verbally fits in with those established legal processes that are you know, very much geared towards visual and text-based interfaces and, and ways of asking about sharing data. So voice forward consent, where the assistant asks you during the conversation if you consent to it using your data, is a very easy user experience. But there are quite a few problems with it, including not being able to understand the full picture of what you're agreeing to. The amount of information you can deliver via voice is quite limited. It's sort of very low bandwidth compared to text on a screen uh, or images, which means that, yeah, communicating all the information you might need to make that decision uh, or you might be legally obliged to provide for people to make those decisions via voice is practically impossible. And our learned behaviour for using the voice assistant is another hurdle. One of the things that I'm really interested um, about at the moment is how voice assistants might ask people to give consent verbally and the kinds of problems that you know might arise when we start to do that. So just looking at the uh, implementations of verbal consent that we see at the moment in you know, Alexa is a good example. There are four key areas where there look, it looks like there are there's some, some problems that we need to tackle. The first problem I've been looking at is the way that voice assistants prompt and kind of pressure people to reply within a certain time frame. So something that's very natural when we're talking about research ethics is that we want people to make consent decisions in their own time you know, got enough time to kind of read the information and absorb it and then make a decision. But if you use uh, an Alexa, for example, after about eight seconds, it will give you a, a poke, remind you what the question was and kind of hurry you for an answer, which is really not what we want to be doing when we're, we're asking people to consent to data sharing or not, as the case may be. Uh, another problem that I've identified is when you talk to a voice assistant, typically everything that comes back will all be in the same voice. And, you know, in reality, we know that under the hood, um, some of the speech will originate from the first party manufacturer, uh, the kind of like operating system, if you like, for the, the voice assistant or the AI assistant. And some of it's going to come from third party skills that are made by somebody else and kind of independent, um, practically and, and legally. Uh, every other platform that you use, you know, goes to great pains to, to really make it clear, um, where these kinds of messages originate from, but that's not something that we, we typically see with AI assistants at the moment. Uh, the third problem is just around speech as a, a way of interacting with technology. Um, you know, text and kind of graphical interfaces like screens are, are very information dense. It's very easy to kind of, it's very easy to absorb a lot of information quickly. And speech is comparatively sort of low bandwidth. So it takes a very long time to read out uh, a passage of text that you might skim in a few seconds. You know, you, you've probably seen the length of a privacy policy. That's, that's not going to work if you have to read it out. 
which means you've got to be very selective about the bits of information you deliver. And one of the things that I've been working on at the moment is kind of asking uh, experts in the field, um, from the public sector, from from industry, like what the what the key bits of information are that we need to give people. And the last thing that I've been looking at is the symmetry of the kind of consent interfaces themselves. So you know, can you give consent in the same way that you withdraw it? So one of the problems with uh, Alexa's voice forward consent uh, at the moment is that you can give consent verbally, but in order to withdraw it, you've got to go into the app, you've got to find the menu and kind of untick some boxes. Um, this isn't as much of a problem if you have to do that in the first place to give consent, because you know, it's kind of obvious that if you uh, do the reverse of you know, exactly what you're doing now, that's a kind of way to back out a bit later. But if you have to find that yourself after verbally saying, you know, yeah, I approve, that's fine. Um, you know, it's not obvious that you've got to go into the app and, and and find these these menus that are kind of hidden away. But these are not impossible challenges to overcome. Will told me more about the research he's been doing. Right. So this is one of the problems with the way that like consent mechanisms are designed on, on phones, on voice assistants. Yeah, is that there's everything gets kind of lumped in together and presented as uh, a kind of binary consent decision, even when that's not actually what's kind of going on behind the scenes. There's some complications around, you know, these things are presented as like, you know, permissions or like consent decisions. But in many cases, skills will effectively kind of require those um, in order to work properly. Uh, from a legal perspective, uh, if you're consenting to data sharing, it shouldn't be a precondition of the skill or the service that you're using. It should be something kind of optional on top. Uh, and anything that's required should be covered on some other basis, be it like a contract you have with, with whoever's giving you the service or some other like legitimate interest that they might have. The problem is that for skills, you know, everything is presented as a consent decision. You know, do you, do you agree to let the skill use your, your name, your address, um, regardless of the kind of legal way that these are, are considered? Okay. So you might, in theory, you should be able to withdraw your consent to share your, your name, for example, and that shouldn't cause any problems, right? Things should just carry on as normal the next time you use the skill. In practice, because there's this conflation between kind of practical consent and legal consent, uh, it might well be that, you know, you withdraw these permissions and the skill is like, I'm not going to work until you re-enable sharing your, your location. But it doesn't need your location or it does need a location to work. Uh, maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. Um, in both cases, quite often, the way these things are programmed is to effectively require that information to, to run. So one of the things that we're looking at in our work at the moment is, you know, different ways that we might present these different types of information sharing uh, and kind of, you know, indicating upfront how optional different things are. So maybe in order to use this taxi skill, you, know, you need to share your address with us because um, we need to know where we're going. Um, and you, you might optionally be able to like share your name so that we can kind of personalize the way that the skill interacts with you. So it's clear that the voice assistant ecosystem and the way it interacts with the user is changing and evolving. With pressure on one side to make it a seamless and easy experience for the user, 
and pressure on the other side to provide transparent and thorough information on what data is being used for. But for now, at least from my point of view, it sounds like not giving consent to use my data unless it's absolutely necessary would be the preferable way forward. For lots of skills and applications, that does work. But I have had the experience so many times of opening an app and it only works properly if I give consent to use my location or input my name and email address, even when the app does not need it to function. And this kind of unnecessary access to data is slipping into the way skills are designed as well. It's an area that the SAIS team have been investigating. The problem is that what's going on within a skill is hidden. It is a so-called black box and researchers must find a way to shine a light into it. Guillermo explains how they did it. So one of the challenges behind analyzing this, this technology is that they, they are a, a black box. So in, in one of our earlier works, which is called SkillBets, we developed a, a tool that was able to um, read from different angles uh, these uh, black boxes and and in particular skill bed was um, first of all um, gathering what is you know what third party developers are claiming to be using in terms of data collection practices from each of the skills. We developed a natural language processing framework that was able to read the uh, uh, privacy statements the the, the, the kind of like a the privacy policy of each of these skills, and we were able to automatically uh, understand what are the data collection statements and understand if uh, behind that data collection statement was a given purpose, and, and we tried to map it with the permissions that uh, the third-party developer was uh, requesting. So at the end of the day, the output of our tool was able to tell us, okay, this skill is supposed to ask for your location and for your email address, but in the privacy policy, we only see that um, this skill is justifying the use of the email address for, for a legitimate purpose. With their results, they were able to measure the traceability of skills. Professor Jose Souk, lead researcher on the SAIS project, explains what is meant by traceability. Traceability, we consider it as the correspondence between what the skill is asking and what they say in their privacy policy they are doing with that. So we actually looked at when third-party developers of skills, when they request personal data from you, what they do with that uh, data. So we did a traceability study from what they say in the privacy policy to what the actual skill requests from the users. When there is good alignment, we say that the traceability is complete. When there is only partial alignment or things are not explained completely well, we say it's partial traceability. And when there is personal data collection, the privacy policy doesn't mention that, or even there is no privacy policy, then the traceability is broken. So we actually look at the traceability of 100,000 skills. And you can do that automatically. You don't need to go manually looking at each case. And this is where we also found lots of skills doing things in a way they should not. And we reported this to both Amazon and to the developers because we don't actually assume that there is a malicious intent. In some cases, there may be a genuine mistake. So it was hundreds of uh, skills that we found that had bad uh, uh, privacy practices. And... 
actually later on we saw that some of them had actually been taken down, some of them had changed what they were saying in their privacy policy, some of them have actually now were actually now requesting less personal data. So there were lots of changes that happened because of what we did and the system that we created to check that traceability between the data that third-party skills are collecting and what they say they are doing with the data. From the sample in the SkillsVet study, 18% of skills had partial traceability and 25% of skills had broken traceability, meaning they request data but there's no accessible privacy policy associated with the skill. You can read more about the SkillsVet study in a blog on the SAIS website. The link will be in the show notes. So the SkillsVet research by the SAIS team has had an impact on both the service provider Amazon and on the skills developers. This opens up a bigger question. Should it be the researchers who make sure that the privacy policies are there, present and correct for users? Or should that responsibility lie elsewhere? It's a very interesting question. I think there has been a, a quite a back and forth as, as where the responsibility lies and and. and and not not only voice assistance, but also any kind of cloud service has been at the beginning advocating is the 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 third party developer or 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 who is behind the the, the design of the service the the one that is responsible. And we have seen recently how policymakers have been shifting the the focus towards uh, also bringing responsibility towards the the service providers. And I think, in my opinion, this is uh, a key to success because uh, they are the ones that they know the ecosystem. They are the ones that have the means and the tools to properly bet third-party applications or services or their users. And if you don't put a little bit of pressure and focus on on, on, on them, and if the responsibility doesn't lie in a big part of it in, into them, then there is no incentives for them to to, to actually sanitize and bet these ecosystems and, and to, to secure uh, the users. That was Guillermo's view on who should be responsible for checking if the privacy policy is available. Skillvet is a tool that has been noticed by industry as something that can push towards more transparency for users. James Flint, a privacy consultant at Securities, shares his thoughts. I thought Skillvet was very interesting. We're always on the lookout at Securities for tools that we can recommend to people. We're very big on trying to point out to people that actually building privacy in at the design stage, think about privacy early in product design, actually not just improves the product. Uh, you know, you remove a lot of the friction by building it sensibly, but also it makes for a better product and makes for better audience retention. So, um, and it takes a while for, to percolate through, but that's definitely one of the things that we're finding with assistance is that people aren't using them as much as they could because the interface is problematic and that in the broader sense. And I thought Skillvet was very interesting because um, it was does quite a thorough look at both the infrastructure behind you know, the data infrastructure behind a particular skill, uh, and also the privacy front ends. This kind of work uh, using technology to map technology and present, uh, you know, a simplified output about about what the risks are uh, and what potentially the solutions are as well is really, really helpful to consumers. And, you know, we've seen it in on the web with things like NewsGuard, who've built, you know, some tools for the trustworthiness of websites, you know, and for news sites, you know, how trustworthy is this news source? You know, they don't intend to give you a 100% perfect answer, but what they do is they use a lot of tools, AI and other technical tools to, to, to give you a guide, like a snapshot score, 
as to how trustworthy something is. He went on to explain the business case for good privacy. GDPR set a bar that actually has been taken quite seriously internationally. And um, we are getting to the point where 60% of countries now have some sort of privacy regulation. That's seen to be 80%. Um, and you know, increasingly working with international clients, we are seeing a lot of countries got very GDPR-style legislation. Uh, it's having a big impact on business. And we're getting to the point where actually you just have to do good privacy in business in order to operate. And if you don't, it's going to be very bad news for you. It's going to be very bad news for you, the regulators, because there actually are regulators and they're given, you know, they're being given uh, quite a lot of powers to find. And it's going to be very bad news for consumers because the fact is, if you do not have a good privacy stance, your competitor will, right? Because people will see it as a competitive advantage, and. It's it's no doubt that right now it's a big drain on business. There's a lot of energy being put into this, but you know, you I think what we're seeing is a realization that data is both a boon and a liability. It and people are beginning to understand that you need to treat it like anything else. It's like fire safety in a building. You know, if you have a office building, you're going to have fire safety. You're going to have sprinklers. You're going to I mean, you know, but with data, it's the same thing. You, you have to have good data hygiene because actually all businesses now are digital businesses. All businesses depend on data. And apart from anything else, privacy is not actually really that much about privacy. It's about respecting the rights of your customers and acting with transparency and acting with knowledge about what you're doing with effectively their property because the data is theirs, it's not yours. Research like SkillsVet has the potential to push the service providers and developers for greater data transparency in the future. And the future of AI assistance is something we will look at more in the next episode, as well as how inferences about your behaviour can be gathered from your data. That's next time on Always Listening. The SAIS project is a cross-disciplinary research project between the Department of Informatics, Digital Humanities and the Policy Institute at King's College London and the Department of Computing at Imperial College London, working with non-academic industry partners and policy experts, including Microsoft and Securities, who you will hear from in this podcast. If you would like to find out more about SAIS, you can visit us on our website or contact us on Twitter or LinkedIn. All the links are in the show notes. The music in this podcast is by Serge Quadrado.